We saw through David what it looks like to be used by God. And this morning we saw, um, and we don't have to fear Goliath, right? Because we have faith in someone who can slay Goliath and who invites us to stand firm and fight for victory. I love these lessons that we're learning through the life of David, and I'm, I'm excited that we got a chance to go through this series at retreat. And I think we're going to get another really good story tonight from the story of David and Bathsheba. And, and, and we're going to see this God that we just sang about in action, <laughs> right? A God that takes something and turns it into another. So we've been in 1 Samuel, but now we're going to be in 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and meet me there. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 11. See, all of the moments that we've been looking at in David's life have been defining moments. The anointing and the slaying of Goliath and this story of Bathsheba will be no different. But I think whenever we think about defining moments, we know this reality about defining moments. That all moments are not created equal. Defining moments are big moments. Right? Not only big moments, but they're moments that change something about us. They change us. They change the direction of our lives. And they can happen by choice. They can happen by circumstance. They can happen uh, uh, in, in, in some kind of ways. They can be positive. They can be negative. But what they have in common is that they're definitive, meaning they change something about us, whether it's how we view our lives, what we do, or who we are. And I think everybody in this room can point to some moments in their lives that have been defining moments. And myself, since being married for the last nine years and having four kids, you can imagine that I have quite a few defining moments in my life, right? Like even finding my way to the state of Iowa, I'm from Kansas City originally, a defining moment in my life was leaving my home in Kansas City and going to Iowa City on a Division I scholarship. Defining moment, meeting my wife there as well, who was also a Division I basketball player at the University of Iowa. <laughs> Defining moment, our kids have good genes. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <clears throat> our wedding day, June 15, 2013. Defining moment. Living overseas for four years. Defining moment. Having one kid and then three more. <laughs> Defining moments, right? We'll never be the same. Defining moment after defining moment after defining moment. And the thing is, so many of you are also in seasons and have come out of seasons or are, and are entering into seasons where you also have defining moments. Getting into college, getting your first job, leaving your state, your home for the first time. Some of you are in relationships, you're getting engaged. All of these things are moments that are going to begin defining and shaping and changing who you are. And tonight we're going to look at probably David's most defining moment as we see the man after God's own heart wrestle with some decisions through this text. And I think what we're going to see is that yo, some of the defining moments in our lives aren't always positive, but we're going to let David show us that. Okay, let's look at verse one. It says this in 2 Samuel 11, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from, un for her, from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent word to David that I am pregnant. Now, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you're not really surprised by any of this. But if you don't, you're, you're probably having a hard time now hearing this story and reconciling David with who we've seen in these last two messages. We've been seeing a chosen and valiant warrior, David, but now we're seeing the broken and the human David. I was talking to my wife about this sermon uh, when, I was, when I was doing some study, and she was telling me about her brother, and, and, and they were young, and they were having this conversation about David, right? And, and they were talking about David, and her brother says, well, which David are you talking about? We kind of laughed about that, right? Because, because it's, it's true. Like, like we, we can kind of read the Bible. And if you don't know that the David that was the shepherd boy is the same David that killed Goliath and the same David that, that slayed the thousands, the same David everybody praised, and the same David that became king is the same David that's now doing this with Bathsheba, you might have to have the question that this could possibly be somebody else. See, David's character goes through such dramatic changes from the pasture to the palace. And it's really hard to think about it being in the same person. The David from 1 Samuel 16 is the same David from 1 Samuel 17 is the same David in 2 Samuel 11. What we're seeing here is a David who has grown comfortable in his position. And when he's grown comfortable in his position, sin creeps in. You see, the thing about sin is that we rarely ever fall hard and fast. We usually take small steps into sin. Red flags after red flags, and we ignore these. <laughs> and this is what we see in David's life early in this chapter. There's at least three that we can point out, three red flags I want to show us. The red flag number one is this, that David didn't go to the war. Let's look at the math here, right? It was wartime. Kings go to the war, the first verse tells us. David is a king, but where was David? Not at war. He was at the crib. You see, sometimes we fall into sin simply by not being where we're supposed to be. Proverbs tells us that idle hands are the devil's playground. See, if David would have gone to the battlefield with his men, then he wouldn't have been in bed with the woman. Red flag number two, David went to the rooftop. Look back at verse two. It said that it happened late one afternoon. And some translations say it happened in the evening. Notice the time of day, red flag. David walks on the roof. It was known that at this time of day that people would usually be outside bathing. And David knew exactly what he was doing. See, David in his life right now was flirting with sin, like, oops, I just stayed home from war, and oops, I just walked onto the rooftops, and oops, I'm just going to inquire. 
but his inquiry was null and void, I think, because, we, because he would have known exactly who Bathsheba was. In my study, I was trying to, trying to reconcile this idea that, that David would have known Bathsheba and David would have known her husband and David would have known her dad. He may not have known everybody in the kingdom, but if he's walking on his palace and he can see Bathsheba within an eye shot, that means that she at least would have been on his block. You may not know everybody in your city, but you know one or two people on your block. And Uriah had been in his army. He, he knew who Uriah was. He knew who Bathsheba's dad was. So when the inquirer said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, do you know what he's saying? I think it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> it's a definite answer posed as a question so as not to tick off the king. You know how it is when you're speaking to somebody who has rank on you, right? Say you're working, you have a boss, and your boss makes a mistake in their speech. <laughs> they know that something's due Monday, but they slip up and say Tuesday. You're not going to come to them and say, yo, it's Monday, dummy. <laughs> what are you going to say? Oh, excuse me, don't you mean, don't you mean Monday? <laughs> you know they know, but it's rhetorical. I believe this is what was happening with David and his inquirer. Red flag number three is David commits adultery. I want to make this clear that this was not a consensual act with Bathsheba. This isn't like, right, two friends who are in a relationship, but they start hanging out, right, and like they have this thing going on on the side, and it's like this consensual thing. Like, like this isn't like that at all. This was not a consensual act. At worst, this was an act of rape, and at best, it's a sick act of abuse. See, David inquires about Bathsheba, and the messenger comes to her, and there's a knock at the door, and the messenger says, the king has sent for you, and she has two options at this point. Deny the king and risk her life, or obey the king and be marked by a scarlet letter. And we have to remember we have no other stories like this about King David to this point. And so David's reputation as king is one of integrity. It's one of nobility. It's one of faithfulness. It's one of justice. Bathsheba, in her right mind, had no reason to not trust her king. She had no reason to fear. And it's not lost on me that a similar situation like this may be a part of some of your stories in this room. You might be suffering from a difficulty to trust people and the relationships around you because you've been taken advantage of by people who should have been taking care of you. And if this is you from the bottom of my heart, I am sorry. But we have to ask the question, how does this happen? How does something like this happen? How does David fall so hard? How does he fall so fast? How could David do something like this? I want to point out two things to us. Number one, sin blinds. 
When it comes to sin, it's not likely that we go from zero to 100. No, it's usually several compromises, one after another, after another, after another. You don't go from complete integrity on Monday to sleeping with Bathsheba on Tuesday. I've spoken to many college students about sexual sin, you know, and, and, and they come to me and they're telling me stories. And they say, oh, I'm dating, I'm dating this girl. And they say, we're struggling with sexual purity. And so I ask them, well, how? Like, like, like when, when does it usually happen? And, and they usually almost always give me a story, something like, well, we're hanging out with friends, and then we go home. We're hanging out at one of our apartments or one of our homes, and we're alone. We're watching a movie. The lights are off. It gets late. And one thing leads to another. Have you heard this type of story before? Have you talked to somebody about a story like this? Has it been a part of your story? I hope this helps somebody in here. When this story kind of comes to me, the first thing that I say is, 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 is you pretty much put yourself in an impossible situation to win and then you're surprised when you lose. You're alone in a place with someone you're attracted to or dating, red flag. The movie on and the lights are off, red flag. It's late at night, red flag. There's blankets out, red flag. You can see it going down in a downward spiral right before your eyes, but whether you choose to ignore it or you're just oblivious to it, you're blinded by it. We ignore it, we hide it, we justify it or whatever because you know we're blind to the red flags. It never comes to mind to say, hey, we're alone. We should probably go to the living room. Hey, we're alone. Maybe we should turn the lights on. Hey, it's getting late. I should probably head back to my place. But not only does sin blind, but it also compounds. See, David's blindness leads to the compounding of his sin. Instead of owning what he did, he looks for ways to cover it up. And the best thing he can do now that Bathsheba is pregnant is to kill her husband. I mean, he doesn't do it right away, right? He's, he's, he's too smart. He's too sly. But the things he begins to set in motion because of unco- unconfessed sin will lead him to a place where the only option he has left is to kill. So how does sin compound? Sin kills your integrity and sin kills your empathy. In verses 6 through 9, David sends word to Joab to send Uriah home from battle. And when he gets there, David's lack of integrity does a full onslaught on Uriah's depth of integrity. Look at this, starting in verse 9. It says, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slipped at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house, Uriah said to David? Or Uriah said to David, the ark And Israel of Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink, to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. 
And then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his own house. I'm going to pause right here for a second. Uriah came home from the war and he goes to David's place. And at first, David is just talking to him, making small talk, right? How is the war going? But you can tell clearly he doesn't even really care about the war. He doesn't care about the war at all. His, his whole aim is to get Uriah to come home, to go sleep with his wife, so that it looks like the baby that Bathsheba is now pregnant with is not David's, but it's his. And so he tells him to go home, and he sends him off with a gift. It's probably some strong drink, and says, go home and take a load off and be with your wife. But Uriah never opens the wine, and he doesn't go into the house. And David finds out, and he's shook, like, yo, you came home. You just came home from a journey. Go home to your wife. Rest up. Kick your feet up for a little bit. He doesn't do it. His last plan doesn't work. And so he says, maybe, listen, I'll just get him drunk myself then. <laughs> if I get him drunk, maybe he'll for sure go to his wife. But Uriah doesn't this time either, and this blows my mind when I read this. Because a completely blackout drunk Uriah has more integrity than the anointed leader of God's people. Not once. But twice, David tries to get Uriah drunk to cover his sin, and it doesn't work. How desperate can you get? Apparently much more desperate. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Did you catch that? David made Uriah carry his own death sentence. Not only does sin kill your integrity, but it also kills your empathy. Here's what it says in the letter. Listen, verse 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David has now murdered Uriah. He abused his power to sleep with Bathsheba and has now murdered her husband. 
And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Heartless. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to her house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the man after God's own heart, y'all. David the shepherd boy, the great defender of Israel the mighty man of battle, the most important man in Israelite history. He pursues a married woman. He gets her pregnant. He destroys his integrity, destroys his empathy, and he kills her husband. And the worst thing about it is that he's completely convinced he's in the right. He's probably thinking, well, what else was I supposed to do? I imagine everybody in here would say, well, well, not that. That's true. But David couldn't see. He was blinded by his own sin. Sin blinds and sin kills. You see, David thought he got away with his sin, and he doesn't acknowledge it for a whole year. We're going to look into chapter 12 as well, and we'll see something that happens here. A friend comes to David, and I want to begin reading this in, in 2 Samuel 12. This is what it says. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who came to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you to the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. My, my. I believe everybody in this room needs a friend like Nathan. 
Nathan comes to him and tells him this parable. And he's completely honest with him. Open. He has the word of the Lord on his lips. And this parable is designed to put David in the judge's seat. And when it came time to judge the man in this parable, he decided to give this man the worst punishment possible. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. It says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against him. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You see, in the Mosaic law, there is a punishment for this very act, right? For somebody abusing the poor and taking something that was theirs, particularly a lamb. There's a law in the Mosaic law for just this thing. Since the man had stole the lamb, the law says to pay it back fourfold. But David goes even further. He says to kill him, (laughs) right? David got it right. But he goes even further. He extends the law for no reason. But listen, I don't know what's going on in David's heart. But as I read it, it kind of resembles something that often goes on in my own heart. See, when it comes to other people's sin, I tend to want the maximum punishment. But when it comes from my own sins, I want maximum grace. See, when I was in Iowa, I sometimes helped out with the youth group ministry, and I would disciple a group of middle and high schoolers. And one of the things that they were always concerned about and asking questions about was, like, this concept of grace. Who gets it? Who deserves it? Who should have it? All of these sorts of things, right? Like, the, the, the main question they would say, like, how bad do you have to be to not receive the grace of God? Fair question. Fair question, I think. And they would list off names like Hitler, and and, and they would think of people who had owned slaves, or they would say names like Jeffrey Dahmer or or, or some other serial killer or something like that. So let's just think about this for a minute. From God's perspective, what do you think is the gap between you and the worst person that's ever lived? It's non-existent. But what is the gap between you and God? It's eternal. And what did God do for you? He gave his life. This is often what I would tell these students, and this is the reality that Nathan was trying to get, to, to get, to get David to see. He's saying, I know you think this rich dude is evil, and he even might be, but he's literally the same person as you. Salt Company, what Nathan was trying to get David to see is that the first thing we have to do with our sin is that we have to own it. But the second thing that Nathan shows that we have to do is we have to repent of our sin. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. David, after hearing this story, finally comes to his senses and he comes to a point where he finally recognizes, yo, the thing that I have done was evil. 
And I like this in the text. I kind of like it. I kind of don't because it kind of jumps over uh, uh, him talking about what he had done to Bathsheba and Uriah. But I like it because he goes directly to the source. He says, the thing I have done is I have committed this sin against the Lord. Oftentimes our repentance stops and there's little fruit that comes from it because we're concerned about the, the subjects, not the object of our sin. We're concerned about who we sinned against, not concerned about, about, about God. But there's something else that we've got to see here. We have to see that this was a major defining moment in David's life. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He covered up his sin. He had killed her husband. But we see here in the story of David that the defining moment in David's life was not the worst mistake he ever made. The defining moment in David's life was how he responded to the worst mistake he ever made. He repented. Look at verse 13 again. It says, in the moment of repentance, Nathan says, because of your repentance, your sin has been taken away. You will not die. Yes, there is consequence still for your sin, but your guilt before God is gone. Your sin has been taken away. How can David be a man after God's own heart? How can he be still the most important people in Israelite history? Being a person after God's own heart is not about whether your defining moment was a moment of success or a moment of failure, but whether or not you repented after your moment of failure. That is a defining moment in your life that determines whether you are a person of God's heart. Not what your biggest mistake is, but how you responded after your biggest mistake. So Salt Company, what do you think is your defining moment? See, I have a story. Um, I'm married to the most amazing wife in the world. But there was a time in my life where my life was tainted covered with sexual sin. Not only masturbation and pornography, but literally careless sex with women. Womanizer was a total pig. Anything that was available to me, I took. You name it, I was blinded by it. See, I was one of those guys that thought like, man, if, if I could just find the right girl, then I wouldn't be like this. I got bad news for you, fellas. It doesn't really work like that. I found the right girl, and it still didn't stop. And part of my story is that my wife and I, in the early days of us dating, even engaged, had to work through sexual immorality in our relationship. See, there was a time in our engagement period where I actually stepped out of our relationship, and I slept with another woman. And I held that sin to myself, and I was willing, ready to die, ready and prepared to take that sin to the grave with me. And it was five years that passed. In the story for David, it was one year that passed, and it was one guy that came to him, and he flooded with repentance. I held on to my sin for five years before saying a word. And my wife actually found some, some, some correspondence, some messages between me 
and this other woman, and she brought it up, and I completely denied it, lied to her face. Time and time again. And I still remember the day when the Lord brought me to my knees in a moment of repentance before my wife and told her everything. And when I told her, I was in a state where I couldn't even stand on my feet. I was in a state where my heart was pounding super fast. I couldn't even get my words out right. No one even provoked it. I believe it was a miraculous work of the Lord to come into my life and say, like, yo, you can't take another step without confessing and repenting. And so I confessed and I repented to my wife. And I can truly say that nine years into our marriage that we are doing better than ever. But before that had to be the case, like we had to go through a reconciliation process. We had to rebuild trust. We had to rebuild hope in our relationship. There's a reality to sin and the reality to sin is that there's consequences in sin. Yes, you are completely forgiven once you repent, but there's also an element of restoration to repentance. See, I don't know what you think your defining moment is, but I thought that this was my defining moment. Maybe you think that yours is that breakup that you had with the boyfriend or girlfriend where the whole families were involved, you know, those kind. Where breaking up felt like you were breaking apart two whole families, not just you and another party. Maybe it was you dropping out of college. Your parents had invested into your education and, and you had an unction that, yo, this isn't really the place for you. And you dropped out and now you have to deal with this brokenness between your parents, right? Maybe it's the abortion you had back in high school. Maybe it's your addiction you have to whatever it is. Maybe it was a one night stand that one night you had after the bar. What is the thing you fear you will always be known for? See, some of us have a hard time even naming it because we feel like it'll take the power over us. But the paradox is this. Your sin only has power if it's hidden. Your sin lives in the dark, but it dies in the light. It's the lie of Satan said that if you're truthful about your sin, people will hate you, that they'll leave you. They won't respect you or they won't think of you the same. And he'll convince you that God will do the same. But Satan is a liar. He'll tell you that God doesn't love sinners. And that's he'll, he'll tell you that God doesn't love sinners. But that's actually all he does. He'll tell you that God doesn't forgive you when that's his greatest desire. He'll tell you that you're not worthy of reconciliation when God never wants to be apart from you ever. Here's what's true. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe this, Salt Company? David shows you that your bad decisions don't define you. In Christ, what defines you is no more the greatest mistake in your life or the greatest failure, but it's God's grace. See, the issue of being a person after God's own heart is not whether you have a defining moment of success or failure, but if you have repented after that failure. I'm about to conclude and the band can come up. 
See, some of you came in this weekend and you're carrying so much shame. And you're carrying so much guilt in your life. I want to tell you something that that can change tonight. Do you know what the scriptures say that Jesus does with our sin? It says that Jesus carries it. First Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does he carry it, but he cast it away. Micah 7.19 says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread on our iniquities under his foot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus carries our sin. He puts them on himself. You no longer have to carry your sin. If you put your faith in Christ, you repent of your sin, you confess and you believe in God. You believe that Jesus did what he says he did. He lived the perfect life. He died the death we should have died. He was buried in the grave and he rose defeating death. He died. He was a ransom. He was the redeemer. He paid for you. He paid for the sin. It's on him. He comes in and he sees you filthy like he saw David and the pastor unclean with the sheep. And he says, stop scrubbing. You don't gotta do it. I'll carry it. Not only does he carry it, he cast it away. He cast it away. He separates it far from you. Over the horizon as if it never happened. It's an unbelievable reality. So what happens when you've come to a place where you recognize the weight of your sin? You confess. And not only that, but you walk in the freedom of a forgiven life. See, the wildest thing about giving your life to Jesus is that God doesn't see you any more holy the day you die as he did the day that you first believed. So non-believer, if tonight is the first night that you believe, when the nights get long and the days get hard and the head of the giant comes back and it, and it, and it, and it comes and taunts you, don't forget that you were just as saved and loved then as you were at the beginning and as you will be at the end. When you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Christ, you immediately receive the complete righteousness of Christ. Nothing left to earn, nothing left to do, nothing left to prove, 100% forgiven, 100% saved.
Y'all, could we bow our head and close our eyes? I want us to reflect for a minute. How would your life be different if you actually lived out of the forgiveness available to you? How would your life be different if you no longer had to hide? How would your life be different if you no longer had to suppress or depress the thing that you think defines your life? How different would you be? How much more bold would you be? How much more faithful would you be? Imagine this and believe that this is available to you. Jesus, we don't deserve you. We don't deserve you. They call what you've done a scandal of grace. It's a scandal. We should look at it and mock. The world does. You died for a sinful people. You died for a people who continue to sin. You died for a people on a maybe. My goodness, you died for a people who might believe in you. What kind of God? What kind of God must you be to die for a sinner like me? My, my. What kind of God must you be to die for a sinner like us? Jesus, we don't deserve you. We are grateful for you, Lord. We love you. Lord, we see you on that cross. We see you risen, Lord. We see your blood flowing for us. Oh, we're grateful for it. Lord, would you remind us tonight as we go into our connection groups that your love conquers all. What you desire is not justice. What you desire is for all to come to repentance. Lord, we don't have to be fearful coming to you. We don't have to be fearful laying our lives at your feet. We don't have to be scared to lay our sins at your feet. We don't have to be scared to walk in the light before others. And so I pray for boldness. I pray for boldness. Would you touch us in here tonight? Would you be our mouthpiece? And would you allow us to walk in confession and repentance? and walk in the new life that you have provided for us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.